Well, if you have your Bible with you uh, this morning, I want to invite you to take it and turn with me once again to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, The book of Habakkuk is a small book in the Old Testament uh, located in a section of the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. And we've been studying this message uh, of this minor prophet really over the last few weeks. And uh, Habakkuk presents us with a picture of faith and in particular, what faith looks like in a time of crisis. Uh, The prophet's generation had drifted away from the Lord. The nation of Judah was filled with violence, uh, injustice, and sin was everywhere to be found. The worship of God had become polluted with idolatry and spiritual apathy. And really, barring a move of God, the nation was headed for the brink of disaster. And so when we're first introduced to Habakkuk in chapter 1, we discovered that he is a puzzled prophet. We know that he is faced with some perplexing issues. There are things going on in his world that he does not quite understand. He's been troubled by all that had been happening around him. And so he begins by asking questions of God. Uh, Questions that relate to God's timing. How long would it be before God did something about the sin in the lives of his people? How long would it be before God brought about a great revival? And then he begins to ask questions uh, relating to what he perceived as God's tolerance. Why did it seem that God was tolerating the wicked? Uh, And really at a quick glance, The questions that Habakkuk raises in chapter 1 are not entirely unlike questions that we often ask, because we often ask questions such as why. Why does the Lord allow things to happen the way that they do, both in our lives individually as well as in the lives of those that we love? But beyond his questions, we discovered that Habakkuk entrusts those questions to a sovereign God. So he cries out to God in the form of a complaint. He wonders how long it would be before God would do something. And the answer comes to the prophet in verse 5 of that first chapter, uh, where God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder, be amazed. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Now, the work that God was doing involved raising up Babylon or the Chaldeans, whom God would use as an instrument of judgment against the sin of his disobedient people. And so the Babylonians would come and would carry Judah away into captivity. And so obviously this was not the answer to his prayer that Habakkuk was looking for or that he wanted to hear. And so now, in many ways, he has a double problem on his hands. He doesn't understand God's ways at this point. Uh, So he pours out his complaint once more to God, and he begins wrestling with the fact that God is choosing to use a pagan nation to chastise his own people. Now, the name Habakkuk, I've told you that his name means to wrestle or to embrace And really, that's what we see him doing in these three little chapters in this book. We find him wrestling with God in chapter 1 and asking questions, almost making demands. God reveals to uh, to the prophet his plans in the second chapter and reminds him of his sovereignty. 
And basically, God tells Habakkuk in chapter 2, yes, I'm raising up the Babylonians, but make no mistake about it, I'm going to judge their sin also. And so in chapter 3, as we will soon see, Habakkuk embraces God in humility and surrendered faith. And really the key verse in these three chapters is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which simply says, the just shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. And really in chapter 1, we're given a glimpse of Habakkuk's faith as it's being tested. In chapter 2, we get a picture of faith as it's being taught. And now in chapter 3, we're able to see a glimpse of faith that's triumphant. The kind of faith that transcends the circumstances of life and looks to God with confident hope. Now, if you've got your Bible there with you, I want you to look in Habakkuk chapter 3, and I want to begin reading this morning there in verse number 1. Notice with me that the Bible simply says this, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. He's asking God to send revival to his people. He's asking God to work in a way that would bring God glory and honor. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence. Plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. And then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheaf from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. Let me just tell you what the prophet's doing here. He's going back through redemptive history and he's remembering the faithfulness of God as God had redeemed his people out of their Egyptian bondage. And so this is a poetic way of Habakkuk rehearsing the faithfulness of God throughout Israel's history. The way that he had revealed himself to Moses there on Mount Sinai, the way that he had given his law the way that he had provided for his people, brought victory to his people, even as they conquered Canaan. Uh, You look in verse 10, the mountains saw you and writhed. Uh, The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. That sort of, uh, he's referring to uh, the sun standing still over Gibeon. And we read about that in Joshua chapter 10. He says, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Now listen to this. You went out for the salvation of your people. 
Literally, God broke into history and he went out for the purpose of saving his people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And then for the third time, he uses this word selah, which in Hebrew, it means pause and reflect on what I've just said. Uh, One person said it means this, what do you think about that? Uh, You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And now in verse 16, he's speaking personally here. And Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. It's just a poetic way of him saying, I'm I'm, I'm scared to death. I'm gripped by fear over what the Lord has shown me concerning these Babylonians who are going to come. They're going to carry God's people off into captivity. And yet he says, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Now pay close attention to how he ends uh, here in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then this is addressed to the choir master upon stringed instruments. What we find in this third chapter of Habakkuk is really the prayer of Habakkuk in response to all that God has revealed to him. So, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would bless your word. Lord, thank you that you're the God who's broke into history, who has went out for the salvation of your people, and you're the God who brings glory to your name. So, Lord, I pray that you speak into our hearts and lives in a powerful way, and I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you want to study at some point devotionally, that will greatly enrich your life as a believer, then I would encourage you to take some time, uh, maybe get a Bible concordance, and uh, study all of the prayers that you find that are found throughout the 66 books of the Bible. And honestly, you would be literally amazed by what you would discover. Uh, From Abraham's intercession for the city of Sodom in Genesis chapter 18, to the prayer of Moses in Exodus chapter 32, um, the prayer of Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 2, many of David's prayers that are recorded all throughout the Psalms. There's the prayer of Elijah there uh, on Mount Carmel, or the prayer of Nehemiah over the condition of the city of Jerusalem. What about the prayer of Jonah in the belly of the fish? There's Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1, the Lord's prayer, Matthew chapter 6, the high priestly prayer of Jesus found in John chapter 17. And all told, there are some 650 prayers that are found all throughout the Bible. 
And so you'll notice here in Habakkuk chapter 3 that this is really a prayer that Habakkuk prays in faith. And the prayer of Habakkuk is one of the great prayers uh, in all of God's word. And the language that he uses here in this chapter, it's crafted much in the same way that we find in the Psalms. Now, really, I want to outline this chapter under three headings. And uh, the first heading has to do with Habakkuk um, responding to the word of God. And then he's going to reflect upon the work of God, which is what most of chapter three is. And then he's going to close out his prayer uh, with an expression of faith as he's rejoicing in the will of God. So notice with me to begin with, uh, Habakkuk responding to God's word. And we really see this in the first couple of verses. The Bible says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. So the prophet began in chapter one by asking God why he was so slow in answering his prayer for revival in Judah. And when the Lord gave Habakkuk an answer, it was not the answer that the prophet had been expecting. How could the one who is of purer eyes than to see evil, how could he um, use the wicked Chaldeans as an instrument of judgment on his people? The Chaldeans had been far more wicked than Judah had been. Well, God's word comes to Habakkuk on the matter in chapter two, and it comes in the form of a vision. And God says, behold the proud. There in verse number four of the second chapter. Uh, behold the proud. His soul is not upright within him. He's puffed up with pride. But God tells the prophet that the just, the righteous shall live by his faith. And God says that in his own time, he would judge the pride of the Babylonians just the same. And that judgment against Babylon is pronounced there in the form of five woes that are mentioned in chapter two. And so in the meantime, the one who knows God will live by his faith in God. Times may be bad, the future may become worse, but the righteous will live by faith in the one who alone is worthy of that faith. That's what God tells Habakkuk in chapter two. And in the last verse of chapter two, the vision ends by this, uh, the Lord is in his holy temple and let all of the earth keep silent before him. Regardless of what might happen around him in the world, Habakkuk uh, is reminded that he just simply needs to worship God. All that remained for him was for him to lay his burdens down at the feet of the one who's in perfect control. And so that's what the prophet does. And his response to what God had revealed to him is seen here in this third chapter. And so really his prayer is a response to God's word that had been revealed to him that he's receiving by faith. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about Habakkuk's response, about his prayer. Uh, to begin with, notice with me his attitude. His attitude is seen uh, beginning there in verse number one, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Now, someone says, well, what in the world does Shigianoth mean? Well, you tell me and we'll both know. Uh, this is one of those uh, terms in Hebrew, the meaning is really uncertain. Some scholars have suggested that it refers to a musical arrangement because really all of chapter three is, is a hymn. This prayer of Habakkuk is a hymn, an anthem of praise and worship. 
The only other time that this word is used uh, is in the Psalms as David uses it in the introduction to Psalm number seven. And so Bible scholars have said that perhaps Shigianoth, uh, it signifies a loud cry of praise in a time of pain. And that's kind of opposite of the way that we feel and the way that the world around us thinks. I mean, who can praise in a time of pain, right? Usually in a time of pain, I want to complain about my situation. Well, here's the thing. When God moves in your heart and in your life and you're able to get a word from God, and you realize what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, faith will lead you to rejoice even in the midst of pain. And that's what Habakkuk's doing here in this third chapter. So you'll notice that the word selah is used three times in this chapter. You find it in verse 3, verse 9, and verse 13. And so that just simply shows us that the prayer of Habakkuk uh, is a hymn that eventually would even become used in public worship. And you really are able to see this with the way that he addresses this prayer at the close of uh, the chapter. There in verse 19, he addresses it to the choir master upon stringed instruments. And so this is a prayer. It's an anthem of worship. And the tone of Habakkuk in this third chapter is definitely different than his tone in chapter one. And someone says, well, what is it that's changed? As far as his circumstances, nothing had really changed. Judah was still being disobedient. Babylon was still on the move. And yet there's something different about Habakkuk's tone. In chapter one, he's troubled. In chapter one, he's filled with anxiety. He's even demanding an explanation from God. But not now, not in chapter three. So how do you really account for this change in the prophet? Up until this point, he's been looking at Judah. He's been looking at the Chaldeans. He's been looking at the problems in his own life. He's been looking at himself, his own troubles. God had been blurred in the background. But you see, now in chapter 3, things are reversed. God is foremost in Habakkuk's heart and mind, and everything else has shifted to the background. You see, the prophet has been confronted with the sovereign purpose of God. And he brings his life into conformity to the truth of God. And he's submitting to the lordship of God in his life. He began by asking questions. He began by offering complaints. He began by demanding an explanation from God. But after having been confronted with a vision from God and with a promise from God, he's now in this humble position of trust. And his attitude is one of humility. Habakkuk is learning some things. And the knowledge that he's come to receive from the Lord is now feeding his faith. So he's in a position of humility. That's his attitude. Now, listen to this. The faith that looks to God with simple, childlike trust is humble. The opposite of this is human pride, which is why those two attitudes are set side by side there in chapter 2, verse 4. Two types of people are described in verse 4 of chapter 2. On the one hand, you've got the person who is described as being puffed up. He's full of pride, uh, unbelief. His soul is not upright within him. And then you've got the one who's described as being righteous. 
And the righteous one lives by his faith. Folks, there are only two types of people in the world. There are only two different ways of living in the world. There aren't multiple ways of living your life. There are really only two. You can live uh, by human pride, rooted in unbelief, or you can live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the just shall live by his faith. So, so pride is rooted in unbelief, but faith means that I take the word of God, I believe the word of God, but I act upon the word of God. And that's what Habakkuk is doing here in this third chapter. And that's why his attitude is so very different. He's heard God's word with humility. He's placing his faith in the God who has spoken. Uh, it's the same thing that James talks about in James chapter four over in the New Testament. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says he resists the proud. God stiff arms the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And James says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that's what Habakkuk is doing here. So God gives more grace when the pressures of life increase, but only to those who are humble. And the fact that Habakkuk is praying, uh, submitting himself to God, this is evidence of his attitude of humility, his faith. So that's his attitude. Now notice the second thing here about uh, his response. Notice his approach. Uh, look at the way that the prophet approaches God, the way that he begins his prayer there in verse number two, as he humbly approaches God in response to his word. He says, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. And that word report there uh, translates a Hebrew word uh, that comes from a word that means to perceive, uh, to hear. He's simply saying this, I've heard your word and I bow before you in worship. He's saying, God, I've witnessed your work in the world and I submit my life to you in reverential awe. And let me tell you, that's how you approach God in prayer right there. There's no proud demands being made, no more questions. Habakkuk's not demanding an explanation from God. There's none of that. He's heard from God and now he's had an encounter with God that leaves him on his face in worship and in submission. Kind of reminds me of what we read in the book of Job. You remember Job had his questions and his complaints and you know, Job went back and forth with his three friends throughout most of the book of Job. Well, in Job chapter 38, verse one, the Bible says that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and God had some questions that he wanted to ask Job. And so for the next four straight chapters, uh, the Lord asks Job some questions that Job couldn't answer. And the whole point of God asking him these questions was to remind Job of the greatness of God, the majesty of God, and the sovereignty of God. And after that series of questioning, the, uh, Job responds to the Lord in Job chapter 42 and says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You've asked me who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now listen to this. Job says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In other words, he says, I ran my mouth about God. I said a lot of things in my ignorance. 
I talked about stuff that I really didn't quite understand. He said, I heard, uh, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. And he says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Listen, that is the attitude of a person who's had an encounter with God. You can't have an encounter with God and leave strutting. God will strip you of your pride. God will bring you to a point where you understand, even though you may not have explanations for your situations in life, an encounter with God will leave you with this understanding that he is sovereign, that he is Lord, and he's someone that you can look to in total faith and trust. It's the attitude of Isaiah. Isaiah, when he had his vision of God, he didn't leave strutting. No, Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm an unclean man. I have unclean lips. I dwell among a people with unclean lips. And so Habakkuk has had a similar experience. He's heard from God. He's witnessed the work of God firsthand. And now he's learned something about God's purposes. And the only response then is to fall before this God in total obedience. And he's saying something along these lines. He's saying, in you, O Lord, I place all of my trust. Your will be done, no matter how difficult it may be. Even though I don't understand uh, how you're using these Babylonians to come against your people, I trust your character. I trust your word on the matter. I trust your heart. Your will be done. Which, by the way, isn't that how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? The model prayer, Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So listen, before it's anything else, folks, prayer is worship. It's assuming this posture of obedience before God. It's acknowledging his supreme worth above everything else in life. It's rehearsing his character. It's rehearsing his attributes so that we have a proper understanding of who he is. And that's what Habakkuk is doing as he begins his prayer in this third chapter. I'm sure most of you probably are familiar with uh, the ACTS method of praying. And what I mean by that is the word ACTS sort of represents an acronym, and each letter uh, means something or kind of shows you how to pray. Uh, For example, A stands for adoration. C uh, stands for confession. T, thanksgiving. S, supplication. So it's a reminder of really how we ought to approach God the way that Jesus taught us in the model prayer. In our impatience, let me tell you what we often do. And I know you do this because I often do this. But we often rush into the presence of God with our wish list. We often present a list of what we want God to do in our lives. And prayer is asking God. And I don't want to minimize the importance of that. It is bringing your, your requests to God. We know that from what we're taught elsewhere in Scripture. But folks, before we do any of that, prayer demands that we bow before God in worship and in gratitude for who he is and what he's done in our lives, what he's done throughout history, what he's doing to make a name for himself. 
And as we meditate on the truth of his word and we delight ourselves in who he has revealed himself to be, then the Holy Spirit begins to focus our mind and focus our heart. And it's the Holy Spirit who then shows us how we ought to pray and what we ought to pray for. Now let me tell you, here's where a lot of us have a problem because our prayers have so little worship or adoration in them. We may spend a second or two on the majesty of God's name and the purpose of his will and his kingdom and his desires, but we spend most of our time presenting God with our list of demands. And more often than not, those demands are concerned with our own comfort. That's not how Habakkuk is praying here in this third chapter. So we've seen his attitude. It's one of humility. Uh, we've, We've seen his approach. Uh, His prayer here is scripture-fed, spirit-led. But let me mention a third thing here about his response, and and it's really his appeal. His appeal. What is it exactly that the prophet asks God to do? Now, most of his prayer in this third chapter is a rehearsal of the character of God. And, and, And most of the verses, and we don't have time to get to this today, we'll come back to it later on, but most of those verses in chapter three He's going back through redemptive history and he's praising God for his faithfulness to his people. And really, the only request that he makes is found there in verse two. He prays this, in the midst of the years, revive it. He's saying, Lord, I've heard the report of you. Lord, I've seen your work and I tremble, I fear. And he's saying, God, in the midst of years, would you revive it? In the midst of years, would you make your work known? And in wrath, remember mercy. So basically, he's asking God to revive his work, to reveal his work, and to remember mercy, even in the midst of wrath. He's asking God to bring about revival, but to do it on his terms, and to do it in the way that God so chooses to do it. That word revive there that he uses, it's a word that means to renew or to rekindle. Now listen, think about what Habakkuk is not asking God for. Now if I were in his shoes, I probably would be tempted uh, to ask God to spare the nation from judgment. God, would you remove this this whole uh, threat of Babylon? Lord, would you direct Babylon, send them in another direction. Don't send them our way, God. He's not praying any of that. I would be tempted to pray that if I were him, but he's not asking God to spare Judah from the Babylonians. He's not asking for an easy road. He's not asking for personal escape from what was coming. None of that is found in Habakkuk's prayer. But instead, he's simply asking God to use all of the pain for his own glory. Use all of this, God, use it uh, as a means of bringing glory and honor to your name and use it to bring about a revival of your work among your people. (laughs) Now I imagine in his mind, uh, perhaps Habakkuk could recall the words of King Solomon or the Lord's words to Solomon at the dedication of the temple. Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse 13, God said, when I shut up the heavens and there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence among my people. Verse 14, God says, if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and pray, 
and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. God says, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's a promise. And then God goes on later on in the chapter and says, but if they forsake my commands and if they serve other gods, then know this, I'm going to uproot them from the land that I've given. And this house that I've sanctified for my name, I will cast from my sight. I will make it a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And so Habakkuk knew that that day had come. And yet, even though God was going to give Judah over to the Babylonians, he knew that God, at the same time, was also doing a reviving work. There would be a remnant who would remain, and God would not cast his people off forever because he knew that God had made an unconditional covenant, an unconditional promise to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. So he's acting upon the word of God, he's acting in faith upon the promise of God. That's what Habakkuk is doing here as he's praying. God, in the midst of years, would you revive your work? Folks, I can't think of a more important prayer that you and I can pray at a time like this. God, in the midst of years, in the midst of our lives, in the midst of all that's going on around us in the world, would you bring glory and honor to your name and would you revive your church? Would you revive your people? You know, all throughout history, there have been spiritual awakenings and times of spiritual renewal that have had a profound impact upon individual lives, a profound impact in the church, profound impact even in society around the church. I think about the great Welsh revival that began in 1904. And the instrument that God chose to use in the, the Welsh revival was a young, uh, a young guy by the name of Evan Roberts. And for 13 years of his life, he was only 26, but since he was a teenager, he'd been praying for God to do a reviving work in his day. And that's exactly what God so chose to do. And it began in Evan Roberts' life and it began in a group of people there in Wells and it spread all throughout the countryside. And let me tell you how much of an impact it had on society. In the coal mines there in Wales, the coal miners were getting right with God and, and they were having to, to retrain their donkeys uh, because they had used such filthy language up until that point. Well, when they got right with God, their language changed and the donkeys in the coal mines didn't even know what to do. The Welsh revival, it began with one man who had a burden for God to revive his people in the midst of the years. Uh, you go back before him, you've got the great awakening that happened here in America and happened in England. And largely, God used the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he used the Wesley brothers, uh, George Whitfield, uh, who, I mean, just full of the Spirit of God, preached the gospel all across the countrysides. And God launched the Great Awakening. You go back before them, you had the whole Protestant Reformation. Luther and those that followed him. That was a, that was a spiritual renewal in those days. And folks, I believe with all of my heart that God can do it again. But let me tell you what we're going to have to stop doing as the people of God. We're going to have to stop being so concerned about our creature comforts and get to the point where we're praying the prayer of Habakkuk. God, no matter what you choose to do in the world around me, no matter how uncomfortable my situation has got to get, God, would you bring glory to your name and would you bring about a revival? 
in the midst of years. Daniel Henderson is someone who's, who's written much about revival. And some years ago, he wrote a book uh, called Old Paths, Fresh Power, I think is the title of the book. But listen to what Daniel Henderson said about revival. He said, revival means to live in a new way. New power springs from old paths of New Testament life and leadership. He says, revival in the church has always been rooted in a personal, heart-to-heart awakening of God's people. To be awakened is to be roused from sleep, to to rise from a drowsy state, to become aware for the first time. And God's people are awakened to the sufficiency and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. They're awakened to hear and apply the scriptures, um, to apply the scriptures to their lives with ruthless authenticity. They're awakened to the seriousness of sin and there's an increased sensitivity to sin and it leads to a new and profound repentance. They're awakened to the beauty and the blessing of prevailing prayer. They're awakened to the tragic heartbreak of the lost condition of relatives, friends, neighbors. In in short, they're awakened to Christ, to the supremacy of his power, to the obligation of his purposes, the potency of his promises, and his indwelling presence to accomplish all of the above. And that's what Habakkuk is crying out here in Habakkuk chapter three. God, would you revive in the midst of years? Would you revive your people? Would you reveal your work? And in the midst of wrath, would you remember mercy? You know, a sign of a maturing faith is when you can look at the problems and the difficulties around you and the disappointments of life in a fallen world, and you can simply say, God, I'm not concerned what happens to me. The only thing I want in life is to see you glorified. The only thing that I want to see in life is your people purified. And folks, that's the prayer of Habakkuk. That's the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the hours before his arrest, before his trial, and then his crucifixion the next day, Jesus knew exactly what he was facing as far as the will of God was concerned. And yet his own comfort was not his focus. You say, well, what is his focus? Well, listen to him as he prays in Gethsemane. He says, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, not my will, But, oh God, yours, yours be done. Have you come to to that place in your life as a believer where all you want is the will of God, no matter how painful your circumstances, no matter what God may be demanding of your life, no matter what may be happening in the lives of your children, no matter what may be happening in the life of your family, your job, your church, can you come to the point and simply say, God, what you want, Lord, that's what I want. Because if so, then listen, know, my friend, know that you're well on your way to living with triumphant faith, the kind that transcends all of your circumstances. That's the faith of the Apostle Paul in a Roman prison cell. 
where as he drags the chains across the desk as he writes to the Philippian church, he says, you know something? I've learned that in whatever situation I find myself, I've learned to be content. The fact that he had to learn it means that it wasn't something that came natural. It was something that God taught him through the pain, through the discomfort, through the disappointment of life. I've learned to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. The secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, need. And here's the secret. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through the living Christ who lives in me, who strengthens me. And Habakkuk has one thing in mind as he prays here in Habakkuk chapter 3. It's that God be glorified in his work. His number one desire is that things go according to God's plan, not Habakkuk's plan. He's not asking for a comfortable, easy life. He wants things to be the way God wants them, no matter what that means for himself. This is kingdom praying. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. Now, as I just wrap this up, I just want to ask you this question. Right now, what's the greatest concern in your life? I mean, beyond anything else, what is it that is that has got you worried the most? What is it that keeps you up at night? Are you racking your brain, wondering when in the world life is going to get back to normal? Wondering when it is that you're going to be able to get back to work? Wondering when it is that you're going to be able to get back to church? Because let me tell you, if that's your greatest concern right now as a person, then let me just, let me forewarn you that will lead you to um, turbulent living, a restless spirit, even a cantankerous attitude, the kind that Habakkuk has in chapter one, where he's filled with anxiety and wondering what in the world is going on. But see, it's only after he gets his mind and his eyes off of the stuff that was going on around him and he fixes his mind and his eyes upon the Lord. It's only then that God gives him peace, the kind of rejoicing that he can rejoice no matter. The the, the stalls may be empty. The crop may fail, but I'm rejoicing in the Lord. He's my number one desire. You know, we want to feel productive. We want to be occupied. We want something to do. We're so pragmatic, pragmatic to the core. That's why this stay-at-home stuff is so hard for us. We're activists by nature. But folks, listen, what if the Lord wants to use this time in your life to teach you how to be a man or a woman of prayer? He slowed you down for the purpose of showing you his power and control to bring you to the place where your number one concern in life is his glory and not your own comfort. Could it be that he wants to do a reviving work in your life, even now? Could it be God wants to do a reviving work in our church? (laughs) Can I just say something? Whenever we're able to have church again, and y'all are here, and I'm preaching to a crowd and not a camera, 
My number one desire is not that things go back to being the way that they were before all this started, but that things be that much better and that much sweeter because of what God's done in our hearts and lives during this interval, this interim time. Would to God that he would strip away our preoccupation with entertainment as a church and pragmatism. And rekindle a fresh devotion in our hearts and in our lives for Jesus Christ. Habakkuk says, in the midst of wrath, God, would you remember mercy? He didn't understand it at the time, but let me tell you something. 700 years from that point in Habakkuk's life, wrath and mercy would kiss one another on the cross of Jesus Christ. As there, the wrath of God was poured out upon the Son of God as he was suffering and dying in the sinner's place. Enduring my wrath, my hell, the punishment that I should have deserved for my sin, Jesus, Jesus endured it on the cross in my place so that God could pour out mercy on me, a sinner. Do you know Christ this morning as your Savior? If you've never been saved, then know that your salvation, it's not on the basis of your good deeds, your accomplishments, your activity for God. No, that's not what saves you. The just shall live by his faith. Look to Christ. Believe that Christ died for you on the cross and that he rose again in victory and power over the grave. Confess your sin, repent, and place all of your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word this morning. And God, may the simple prayer of Habakkuk be our prayer. Lord, we've heard the report of you. We've seen your work in the world around us. God, in the midst of years, would you revive it? Would you reveal it? And then wrath, remember mercy. Lord, for those who have decisions to make today, Lord, my prayer is that there would be freedom, that your spirit goes to work in the hearts of people who aren't saved, convicting them of their sin, showing them that Christ is Savior and Lord. And may they look to you in faith and trust. And God, those of us who are saved, who are your church, your people, will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.